0: You know, I want to begin this morning by asking you a few questions. Here we go. Have you spent time in personal prayer this morning? And if so, what did you pray for? What was it that you prayed for? What did you bring before the God of the universe? Pray for people you love? Did you pray for difficult situations that you're walking in in your faith journey? Perhaps concerns that are heavy on your heart today. Perhaps that is what you prayed for. I want you to know as we begin this message, all of those things are good things to pray for. But I also want to be completely transparent with you. My prayer life is often a, a bit like that of an author by the name of Frederick Beekner. Beekner is an author who has written on the faith journey in real and honest and authentic ways. And he once told an interviewer these words, and it resonates in my own experience. He said, My prayers are random, my prayers are sporadic, my prayers are inarticulate and they are helpless. You ever feel that way? When it comes to praying, do you ever struggle with how it is that you should pray? Who should I be praying for? What is it that I should be praying about? We have all these questions, and they are honest, authentic questions that many believers have. But if we're honest with each other in this moment, typically in the context of the church, we don't talk about it. What you hear from this stage is, pray. Go ahead and pray. <laughs> How? who, when? These are all real questions, and if you have any of those questions, I want you to know you are in a good place today because these are the very questions that we are going to be looking at in God's Word in the New Testament book of 1 Timothy. But before we go there, do you know what we're going to do? We're going to (laughs) pray. Let's pray together. Gracious God, Our Heavenly Father, we do uh, acknowledge that you are holy. You are worthy of our praise, of the words we just sang and proclaimed. You're worthy of all of it and more. For you are sovereign. You were in control of our day-to-day lives. You were in control of our schedules for you are the one who brought us here today. You are the one that scheduled this divine appointment that we might be here with you, to meet with you, to hear from you through your word. God, we are a people who desire to do church well, to do it in a way that honors you. And yet we also want to acknowledge today that sometimes we don't get it right. And one of the ways that we can struggle is in our own prayer lives. And so God, in this moment, it is my prayer, along with my brothers and sisters, that you would meet with us through the teaching of your word to mold and shape our prayer lives in the days and weeks and months and hopefully even years ahead. That what your word teaches us today might be transformative for your glory. So God, we need eyes to see the truth that's on its pages today, we need ears to hear this truth, and then God, we just submit humble hearts before you today, that you, through your Holy Spirit, would do the work that you need to do in our hearts and minds, and we pray this humbly, in Jesus' name, amen. Well, White Lake family, we are in the middle of a sermon series titled Church, Why Bother? And what we're doing is we are reflecting upon the words of the Apostle Paul and what he sent to his understudy, a young man named Timothy. And what Timothy was doing was getting things established and kind of guiding or leading the church in a place called Ephesus. And so Paul writes to Timothy to give him some guidance. Now, we just dug in uh, recently, and what we did last week is we saw the importance of sound doctrine and the importance of the true and real gospel. That is where Paul begins. He establishes that right out of the gate. He says, we need to know what the gospel is, what it is not, what it is, and we need to stand upon it. That's how he began last week. Then what he does is he moves to chapter 2. And what we find in chapter 2 is the spiritual discipline of prayer. We come to chapter 2 and what Paul offers to Timothy and all who read this text, a ton of wisdom when it comes to prayer. Now, one key truth that Paul wants all Christ followers to know about when it comes to prayer is that prayer is Communal and it is corporate. Let me say that one more time. Prayer is both communal and corporate. When God's people gather together, we pray. Let me say that one more time. When God's people gather together, we pray. Now, I know the fact of the matter is this runs contrary to what many of us experienced. Because when it comes to prayer, oftentimes what you hear about is the individual side of prayer, and that's good. But today, I stand before you and tell you that God's church is a praying church. God's church is a praying church. And yet, my guess is when I said the word prayer, many of you thought, well, that's me going to my quiet place by myself, maybe turning on some soft music in the background to get into this space where I can pray and have a moment with God. Now, there's nothing wrong with that. I encourage that. That is a healthy spiritual discipline. But there's more. The discipline in the personal space is both good and true, but I want you to know that there is more. He said, Wait a minute, Pastor. I, I, I've read the Psalms. I know what they say. That's one guy communicating prayer. It is. In fact, the scriptures give us many examples of an individual kind of prayer experience. So I want to highlight a couple of those for you. And they begin in the Psalms with praises, prayers of worship. Psalm 18.1, this is what the psalmist writes. I love you, Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer. He is my God, my rock, in whom I take refuge. My shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. That is a prayer of worship. But the psalmist also gives us prayers of petition. He also brings his own personal cares and concerns to the Father. Let's look at Psalm 4.1. Answer me when I call, O God, my righteousness. Do you hear the urgency there? The petition that, that the psalmist brings to a heavenly Father. And you go down to Psalm 7. Oh, Lord, my God, in you do I take refuge. Save me from all my pursuers and deliver me. That is a prayer of petition. Now, those are examples of personal prayer. But I want you to know that that is not the only or even the primary primary model of what we see in Scripture when it comes to the topic of prayer. In fact, prior to our kind of hyper-individualized culture that we call home, prayer was known as a communal or a corporate activity. And yet that runs counter-cultural to what you and I experience today because so much of our faith is sort of told that, well, you do that, it's just you and Jesus. It is, but it's also what happens here at the church in the context of God's people. So what are 21st century believers to do with prayer? I mean, really, I'm talking about prayer and kind of this individual style and this communal style. What are we to do with prayer? How are we to practice it? What does Scripture give us as a guide? Let's grab our Bibles and turn there together. We're looking at uh, 1 Timothy chapter 2, and Paul's going to give us some very specific guidance on what it means for God's people to pray. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, we're going to pick it up. At verse 1. First of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high position, that they may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. And I am telling the truth. I am not lying. I am a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Right there in that text, the Apostle Paul has provided Timothy with three things that the Ephesian church and all of us who are reading this letter some 2,000 years later, that we can learn from those words. And that we can and that we should be praying about right there in that text. So this morning, we're going to be looking at each of those areas of emphasis that Paul highlighted, and the first one is this. When God's people gather, when you and I get together as the people of God, as the church, we should pray for all people. God's people should consistently pray for all people. Now, I'm going to unpack what it means to talk about praying for all people in just a moment, but I want to look first at verse 1 and listen to the urgency with which Paul communicates. He says, First of all, then, I urge that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people. Who? All people. But I want to highlight at the beginning the urgency with, which Paul writes. First of all, he says, it must begin with prayer. He sets that out right there. But it isn't simply a suggestion. It's not like, hey, if you get around to it, maybe thinking about praying for someone. It's not it. Paul says, I urge you, I plead with you. Believers in Ephesus, I plead with you to be people of prayer. And then he gives four words of description about what that is, about what God's people should do and how we can be praying for those people. So I'm going to highlight those just real quick. Supplications. I want you to think passionate, humble, begging. I'm delaying because I want you to feel the weight of that last word. Humble begging. That's the heart posture that we should have when we come to God in prayer. Humble begging. That is what a supplication is. Then he says, prayers. This is kind of the general posture of asking God to care and to bless uh, those for whom we are praying. The prayers. Then he gets to a word called intercessions. The idea here is to come before Almighty God and seek God's favor upon someone else. You're asking for God to bring his favor and to give it to someone else. That is an intercession. And then lastly is thanksgiving. Now this is a heart posture of gratitude. It's gratitude for God's goodness, for the person and the people, again, for whom you are praying. So there's supplication, there's prayers, there's intercession, there's thanksgiving. The point Paul is making is not the uniqueness of the prayers that we offer, but the idea that all kinds of prayers should be offered for all kinds of people. All of those different styles. Say, well, what does that look like? Practically speaking, believers are to be praying for all groups of people, all types of people, all races of people, all of them. We're called to pray this way because the Christian faith is not elitist. We're called to pray that way because the Christian faith is not racist. And we are called to pray that way because the Christian faith is not nationalist. You see, there is no category of people who you and I can go, Hey, I'm going to scratch them off. I don't want to pray for them. Nobody. Nobody's on the scratch-out list. So here's what this looks like for you and me in our contemporary culture. What that means is God's people, Christ followers, should be praying for those who are hurting and are suffering in war-torn Ukraine. You guys know that that's near and dear to my heart, so I should be praying for the people who are hurting there. I should also be praying for the Russian families who've lost sons in the battle. Both sides. As followers of Jesus Christ, we should be pay, praying for the pain of victims around the world. But we should also be praying for the repentance and the salvation of the people who perpetrate those crimes upon those victims. Both sets. As followers of Jesus Christ, we are to pray for people who look different than us, who think different than us, who vote different than we do, and those people who live different lifestyles than you and I choose to live. All kinds of prayers for all kinds of people. That is our responsibility for all people. Now let's return to the text. Verses two through four. This is where we see Paul move from kind of this big general prayer idea. He moves the focus and he gets very, very specific. He said, "We are to pray for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead, that they may lead a peaceable and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way." This is good. And it is pleasing in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires that all people be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. The church should be praying, therefore, for governmental leaders. The church should, in fact, be praying for governmental leaders. Now, what's happening here is Paul exhorts Timothy and the believers in Ephesus, he says, pray for the king. Obviously, we don't live in that structure Now, you might just read that and go, oh, that's easy for them to do. Just pray for the king. Context matters. Here's why what he challenges is so radical and difficult for us to understand. You see, when Paul is writing this letter, there is a Roman emperor named Nero in charge. Nero's an evil man, and he hates Christians, hates Christians. The stories of his hatred are all over, and they are legendary. If you were a follower of Jesus, you paid a steep price under Nero's leadership. And the stories that go are legendary, and I'm going to tell you they are not the sort of thing that you want to be hearing on a Sunday morning. They're brutal. Let me summarize it this way Nero instituted the first ever state sponsored systematic persecution of Christians. Oh, you're a Christ follower? You're going to pay with your life. What Paul says into that culture, he does not say, hey, start a revolt against Nero. Uh Uh-uh. He doesn't say, hey, start a coup. Maybe you can topple that guy. Uh Uh-uh. What he says is he says, pray for the king. Believer. Pray for the king. Now, here is reality that's harsh for you and for me. The application here is actually pretty clear. It's pretty obvious for us. Believer, you were charged by the words of the apostle to pray for your leader, to pray for your president. You were called to pray for your vice president. And let me be clear, I'm not talking about just the guy that you voted for. If you were in Christ today by faith, you were called to bring supplication, you were called to bring intercession on behalf of your governmental leaders, those in positions of authority over us. God has charged you and me to pray for them. Not against them to pray for them. That means not only our president and our vice president, but that means senators and representatives and our governor. Now, right now, some of you might be saying, whoa. Pastor, you have crossed the line. That is troubling, and I find that offensive. as you wrestle with what I just said, listen to the words of Jesus from Luke chapter 6. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Why would Jesus encourage that? And then, why would Paul double down on what Jesus said? Because God desires that his people would cry out to him in the midst of our trials and in the midst of our persecutions. That, in the midst of the challenges, then the circumstances that are incredibly difficult, that you and I, that followers of Jesus, would be people of peace regardless of what's going on, that you and I would be people of peace who faithfully pray. And then we would see the genuine heart of God. That's what we see in verse 4. For God who desires all people to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. That is the heart of God, and so we pray. God's people. And we pray in such a way that the church flourishes. We pray together that God's kingdom might advance, that God's church would grow. But let's let's be honest here. Let's be transparent here for a moment. We struggle with this, don't we? I'm not talking about the church flourishing. Most of us would say, amen, pastor. I want the church to grow. I want the church to flourish. I'm talking about the first part. The part where we said, yeah, pray for those in charge of the government. Pray for those people who you don't agree with their choices in leadership. Let's be honest, that's really hard. That is really hard. In full transparency, when I was reading and reflecting upon this text in preparation for the message today, this convicted my heart. Because I don't want to pray for those who oppose my views. If I'm being honest, I don't want to pray for those who hurt the cause of God's people. I don't want to pray for those who hurt the cause of God's church. I don't want to pray for those people in the sinfulness in my own heart. I do not want to pray for those folks. And yet that got, that's exactly what God calls me to do. Because God desires that our heart would be softened. And I'm pretty sure that's what he wants for you too. So when we pray for our governmental leaders, like the current president, or the previous president, what happens in our own hearts is that our own hearts become soft to what God desires, not what I want. I get off the throne, and I get off of the position of authority that it's about me, and what happens is is I begin to see what God desires. When we take a humble-hearted posture in prayer, it moves us toward the heart of God for his people. It gives us a compassionate heart for what God desires. In his book, a really, really great book called The Praying Life, author Paul Miller writes this. He says, What do I lose when I have a praying life? I lose control and I lose independence. What do I gain? He says, I gain friendship with God. Essentially, I lose my kingdom, and instead, I get his. So you might be saying, well, pastor, where, where is this leading us? I get the fact that I'm supposed to pray for all people. I get the fact that I'm supposed to pray for governmental leaders, even though it is hard Why should the church be praying about these things? Let's go back to the text, pick it up at verse 5. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this is what I, Paul, was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and in truth. And church, this shows us the third thing that we should be praying about, and that is gospel advancement. You and I should be praying for and asking God to bring gospel advancement. Again, context is so critical here. Paul was writing into a culture that had a pantheon of gods, and I use the term gods with a small g. And so he reminds Timothy and all of us today that read this that there is only one true God, and his name is Jesus. There's one true God, and it is only Jesus who is the Christ. Only Jesus is the Messiah, Only Jesus sacrificed his life on a cross to pay the penalty of your sin and mine. Only Jesus. And it is only Jesus who can redeem and restore the lives of sinful men, sinful women, and sinful children. It is only Jesus. So have you been forgiven? Have you been redeemed in Jesus by God's grace through your faith? Have you been set free from your sin? If you have experienced this kind of freedom, then you know why when God's church gathers, we pray for the gospel to advance in our region and throughout our state, throughout the Midwest, throughout the entire nation, and throughout the world. We pray for gospel advancement in our community and across the globe. And we do so because it is only in Jesus that people find true change. Only in Jesus are people's hearts and minds changed. Only in Christ. You see, that's the Apostle Paul's calling, to proclaim that, to teach that. And as followers of Christ, we share in that calling to a degree, because when God's people gather, we pray. Amen.